0: Hello and welcome to the Bike Radar Podcast, brought to you from the team behind Cycling Plus, MBUK and BikeRadar.com.
1: Hello and welcome to the Bike Radar Podcast. I'm Jack Luke and today I'm joined by Simon Bromley and we're going to talk you through some of the hottest tech news from across Bike Radar this past week. Now Simon, in a recent edition of First Luke Friday, I wrote... I quote, I am not embellishing the truth when I say our tech writer, Simon Bromley, spends his lunchtimes looking at the latest images from races on Getty, trying to spot unreleased nuggets of new tech. And your compulsions have paid off this week. And we were the first to spot Mark Soler of Team Movistar riding an unreleased UCI compliant version of Canyon's Speedmax. Tell us more. Yeah, I know I do uh,
0: spend my lunchtime doing that and occasionally my weekends too if I have some free time. I like, I think, you know, especially the time trial days, obviously I race time trials myself and I'm always on the lookout for kind of what the the pros are doing, if they're doing anything new and interesting. And yeah, so I spend my days poring over Getty Images and this week at the uh, the prologue time trial of the Tour de Romandie, I spotted, yeah, like you say, a new uh, Canyon Speedmax and it's a UCI legal version because Canyon recently, kind of late last year, released a triathlon-specific version of the Canyon Speedmax, which was not UCI legal, had much bigger frame tubes, loads of options for kind of, you know, we like we we called it at the time a it's a triathlon bikepacking bike, and it has <laughs> lots of options for carrying food and water and you know, spare parts and all of the all of this stuff kind of integrated into the frame. But of course, that integration and the frame size shoot the size of the frame tubes made it not uci legal which uh because obviously they have restrictions on how big you can make your tubes and how aerodynamic you can make your bikes so so this version is just sort of a slimmed down version and actually like it's very similar to these the kind of cheaper models which have slimmer tubes and kind of bolt-on boxes but this one has an integrated front end just to make it that little bit more slippery so fully hidden cables that sort of thing. And of course, Mark Soler had it with a set of integrated custom uh, very fast aero extensions, but I don't think those would be, those would be stock. They look they look more like the kind of thing that you would pay someone to make you customer.
1: And the key giveaway with this bike was the fact that it has disc brakes, whereas the outgoing Speedmax, which is their current time trial bike, is rim brake only for now. Is that correct?
0: Yeah, that's right. So the, the UCI, so they, they had they had a kind of disc brake triathlon bike, as I say, they launched last year, and the, and the previous uh, UCI Legal Speedmax CFSLX TT was uh, rim brake only. And that hid the rim brakes within the kind of within the fork and under the bottom bracket. And, uh, you know, I've, I've not ridden that bike, so I can't really comment on how good or bad the rim brakes were, but I think, you know, hydraulic disc brakes are a trend on road bikes of all kinds, not just, uh, road racing bikes. There are you know, a trend on, on time trial and triathlon bikes as well. And so, yeah, that's not really a surprise.
1: Provided they're neatly integrated enough, I imagine the aero disadvantage of disc brakes is probably fairly minimal. But more to the point, obviously, if you're a pro, uh, pro rider, this isn't so much of a concern. But setting up rim brakes, particularly because they tend to either use a V-brake or centre design on time trial bikes, is awful. It's just awful, simply, because it is so integrated and so difficult to access. And you have a more complex braking system than a standard uh, dual pivot side pull caliper. So it's a recipe for disaster. So I, I, you know, I am not a committed time trialist. I like to go along and ride on whatever bike I have. But if I was, though I'm no doubt there is a small aero penalty, I think the advantages of disc brakes in terms of minimal maintenance would certainly uh, push me in that direction. I can only imagine how much I've just upset people saying that. I think it's, it's really true. tricky.
0: Yeah, I think it's really tricky to say because you know you can't really compare Apple. You know, when comparing rim brake time trial bikes to disc brake time trial bikes, you can't really compare apples to apples because Canyon hasn't, for example, just released the old rim brake TT bike with disc brakes. So you mm-hmm. and obviously the wheels would change depending on whether you're running a rim brake bike and a disc brake bike. And you know, we spoke or I spoke to uh, Luisa Graponi of Hunt recently on uh on the bike railer podcast and she was telling me that you know the fact that you don't have to have the the rim as a braking surface opens up a lot of design possibilities for not only shape but also the way you use materials and hunt with their limitless wheels for example uses that kind of uh you know non-structural carbon in the uh in the in the in the rim and you just couldn't do that if you had a rim brake wheel and so that kind of opens up design possibilities too but then you know disc brake wheels have to have extra spokes and that's not so good and you know i think from what i've seen the kind of it's it's the the differences are very small at lower your angles and obviously when you're riding a time trial bike at higher speeds you tend to be riding at lower your angles now as your angles increase then there might be a small loss but at the same time, you're also making gains from, as you say, like kind of, you know, hydraulic brakes are better <laughs> at braking. So, you know, if you're running, if you're riding technical courses, you could theoretically make gains by have, being more confident in your braking, braking later, that sort of thing. You know, we, you know like in, in every other sport that involves brakes. Everyone knows that better brakes make you go faster, but everyone's very concerned in this sport about like, well, braking performance doesn't really matter. It's just about how aero it is in a wind tunnel. And actually, like, you know, you have to take into consideration everything. And, you know, I've ridden some truly terrifying uh, carbon (laughs) rim brake wheels in, in wet conditions in my time as a racer. And like, it's just not faster. (laughs)
1: <laughs> so. Yeah, honestly, I, I sometimes wonder whether we'd be better, you know, alongside our traditional roads and bike radars, editors and staff writers, maybe we should just have a disc break, con, you know, kind of correspondent. I mean, the amount that we could really milk that one for, we have been for about five, six, 10 yeah. years now. I mean, you know, it's, it's not to say that you should
0: just bin your rim brake time to a bike. I still ride a rim brake time to a bike and I'm very happy to do so. You know, I, I, most of these, most of my races take place on out and back courses on kind of A roads and you know, you, you really don't brake. So that's fine. I like, it's not a problem, but I think yeah, at the pointy end of the sport, all the investment is going into disc brake wheels, disc brake bikes. You know, whether that's just a marketing thing because they want you to buy a new bike or whether it's a performance gain, like, well, you know, that's up to kind of every individual rider to make the decision for themselves. But the direction of the market is kind of clear. And unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on your perspective, it's it's hydraulic disc brakes.
1: I mean, really, honestly, looking back to my shop days uh, long ago when I used to work at bike shops, I would gladly never have to deal with a kind of integrated V-brake or a centre pool design again. I, I mean, really, I only handled a few... We didn't do a massive amount in terms of TT bikes or tri- uh, triathlon bikes, but oh, just such ultimate faff. Um, as an interesting tiny tidbit, this bike doesn't currently appear on the UCI's list of approved frames, which isn't, that's not wildly unusual. Um, the rules allow for prototype equipment to be used in competition for up to 12 months. Um, but it did certainly come as a surprise to see it there. It's not anything that, that we were, exp- I mean, we could have guessed, but we weren't necessarily expecting to see it at that race. Um, so we'll just wait and see. No official word from Canyon yet. Stay tuned. Um, we also saw, though this has been floating around for a little while longer, a new time trial bike from Cannondale.
0: Yeah, that's right. And it's kind of it looks to have taken a lot of kind of key lessons from the System Six Aero bike which, you know, is no bad thing. That's a bike we, you know, that, but I think the System 6 came out in 2018, which is sometime after the uh, Slice time trial bike, which Cannondale currently has uh, in their kind of arsenal of, of bikes. But the System 6 is a really, really fast road bike. And, you know, it's not overly heavy, you know, has great handling, all that stuff.
1: One you recently tested, actually, am I right in saying?
0: Yeah, I've been, yeah, I've been riding one recently. And like, yeah, it's a really, really rapid bike. So I think, obviously the geometry for a time trial bike will be diff will be different you know the sort of seat tube angle will be steeper and the uh i would say the head tube angle is likely to be slightly slacker obviously just you know for more stability at high speeds but if the tube profiles are similar you know the aero performance is going to be similar and yeah like it doesn't look like the world's most radical time trial bike I, you know I, I wonder if like you know like canyon like scott all these other things they might they may have a kind of more radical uh, triathlon non-UCI legal version in the works somewhere but obviously we're not going to see that in the world tour races.
1: So, sorry to put you on the spot here Simon because <laughs> I don't know if you know the answer to this but for me you mentioned in the story about the bike that it's designed to run the uh, Vision Metron TFA Aerobar. Um, one thing I really noted is that the cockpit on that bike Although it isn't a stem in the traditional sense of the word, the cockpit does sit kind of proud of the head tube. Whereas if you look at something like the, the canyon that we just mentioned, it's all kind of much more in line. Why, why is it like that with the vision? It, it just seems like a bit of an outlier outlier in terms of design. <laughs> so, yeah. So the way that this one
0: works is to kind of rather than running it literally on top of it like you would with a non-integrated Uh, steerer and uh, stem design. This one has a kind of like a little, you know, a little step down, a little kind of cutout at the top of the head tube where this, and the Vision handlebar is an aftermarket bar, as you say, and this one kind of slots in. So, you know, it's kind of like a fully integrated system, but not quite. And I I guess, you know, that has its advantages and disadvantages. Like you say, the Canyon Speedmax uses a totally integrated design with a handlebar of Canyon's own design, and it's very, very clean, but then that will also tie, it means you have to use that handlebar and you don't have a choice. And and I imagine, you know, from looking at this thing, since this uses a standard aftermarket handlebar by the looks of things, you know, theoretically, you could, if you didn't like it, you could take it off and run a handlebar of your choice. And now that's, you know, maybe it loses a watt or two because the kind of interface between the, the stem and the frame isn't as perfect as it could potentially be. But at the same time, you know that having that choice for the consumer to swap out the handlebar, you know, potentially is quite nice. So I think it's a bit—it's a bit of give and take in that in that area. And I think, obviously, you know, the Vision Metron handlebar, Vision also make very nice handlebars as well. I don't—I think it's a very adjustable handlebar, which is very important to me. As we kind of the pictures in the article show, you know, uh, they were using a lot of the team were using Vision's Metron TFE Pro extensions, which kind of mimic those custom carbon extensions that a lot of pros are using now and they kind of the idea is that they shield the forearms from the wind which is a smart decision and you know Canyon Speedmax triathlon bike for example went with a, a mono extension with two little arm uh, handrests pointing out at the end and and it's kind of curious because I think that's the kind of design that would work really well in a wind tunnel when you don't have a rider on the bike because obviously you know by reducing it to one pole instead of two, you're reducing the frontal area and that would reduce the drag. But once you put a rider on the bike, their forearms are kind of bluff bodies then in the wind causing additional drag. So if you can have two extensions that shield those forearms and manage the airflow around the forearms in a better way, I would wonder if that would be slightly more aerodynamic as an overall system. But you know, I don't have any figures to back that up, but that would be my conjecture.
1: Actually, just briefly onto the the design of the bars, I think you mentioned with the System 6 that that also has the, you have the choice where basically, although it has a System 6-specific cockpit, you could, in theory, swap to anything in the future. I wonder if that's perhaps like a, we'll call it a cultural decision within Cannondale's design kind of team to to go for that more versatile option. And it's, it's something, if that is certainly the case, and it's kind of a thought out decision, it's definitely something to applaud because, you know, the availability of, um, of uh, one-piece integrated cockpits designed for one specific bike are kind of uncertain. Do you think that's the case?
0: Yeah, it could be. And and I think, you know, as, as you say, the System 6 has a really kind of smart cable management design where the cable, basically, they just come underneath the stem and then route in front of the steerer into the uh, kind of head tube of the bike. Now, it kind of leaves... It basically means there's just a hole in in front of the in, in front of the steerer tube, in front of the kinda, bike where the is
1: root. Kind of looks like a pelican swooping <laughs> down to scoop up a fish.
0: Yeah, and it does look a little bit ungainly, but it means that you get a standard round steerer, which is great because you know round steerers are kind of easy to use. You can use any stem you want on it, you know, and that means you can use any bar you want on it. And and you know the the, the kind of Cannondale knot Bar that it's specced with is a very nice handlebar, but maybe you want a stem with a different angle or you just don't like the look of it, or you want something, a kind of a length that's not quite available, or a bar shape that they don't do, or a width they don't do. You know, it it just gives you the options. It also means you can replace the upper headset bearing without having to completely (laughs) decable the bike, which is quite nice. But yeah, as you say, maybe it's just a kind of design philosophy or culture that Cannondale has. And, you know, for me, I would really, really applaud that because you know, not to kind of pick on Canyon here, but we've seen recently with the kind of Canyon Road Mm -hmm. that when there's a problem with that only one integrated handlebar that that bike works with, if it can't be replaced immediately, you basically just have to stop riding your bike. And I'm sure I have no doubt that they will fix that eventually. But, you know, if there's a problem, as you say, kind of 10 years down the line, you have a crash, for example, you break your integrated handlebar, And that bike has been discontinued and it's only compatible with that one handlebar you know i don't know what you do at that point
1: (laughs) it's a really good point perhaps we'll email cannondale and ask because it's quite an interesting thing finally in addition to that we also saw in your words big hitters testing out new kit and positions and as well as looking at new tech nuggets you also like to assess people's positions and you had Plenty of thoughts, which we discussed at length on our Slack channel, about old uh, old Geraint Thomas and his um, fit.
0: Yeah, Geraint Thomas, uh, obviously, you know, a really good time trialist, has been the uh, British time trial champion before. You know, came obviously, he's won a Tour de France and came pretty close to winning the final time trial at the Tour de France in the one that he won. <laughs> he nearly, he was really, really going for it in the yellow jersey, and nearly overcooked a corner before kind of backing off a little bit and deciding that you know since the overall victory was pretty much in the bag as long as he finished, maybe it was worth just protecting that. Um, but he, yeah, in a kind of contrary to the normal trends, and we, you know, we see a lot at the moment with of riders kind of with monstrous stack heights on their armrests. You know, Stefan Kung is one; he's a really tall guy and runs about twenty centimeters of uh, spaces between the base bar and his armrest. And that's kind of been the trend, you know, because I think people, um, you know, many people realize that you don't necessarily have to get as low as possible to be slippery in the wind. But Thomas has really bucked that trend and has gone for a kind of like an incredibly aggressive uh, position where his torso angle has basically gone beyond horizontal and he's kind of really creased over on the bike, pointing down. he It's a bit like kind of uh, his teammate, uh, Jonathan Castro Viejo, if, if anyone, you know, you might recognize him, Spanish national time trial champion a few times. He also has an incredibly aggressive position. Now, you know, the traditional issue with that is, is that is that it often means, you know, it puts a lot of strain on your neck and your shoulders. And the tendency is that, yeah, maybe it's fast in the kind of wind tunnel, but you get out in the real world and you can't hold that position. Your head tends to pop up. You know, you come out of the aero bars a bit more often than it's perhaps optimal. And it works out to not be fastest overall. And potentially because of the tight hip angles, it isn't always the kind of optimum position for putting out maximum power. But... We can presume that he's not just done this on a whim because he's mm-hmm. had some custom uh, time trial extensions made by AeroCoach, who, you know, a very smart company. And I have to wonder if they've been testing it with him. He obviously thinks it's a s- sustainable position. I think it's a big year for time trials, obviously. There's uh, two time trials in the Tour de France. There's the time trial at the Olympics. And they're not the longest time trials in the world. They're kind of around 20 to 30 kilometers at the Tour, I think. And there may be... 45 kilometers in uh, the Olympics. So maybe he's thinking that if he trains enough in it, it's sustainable for the duration of the event, it will be faster. You know, he did a good, he finished second on that prologue, just nine seconds behind former world time trial champion Rohan Dennis. So yeah, it it, it looks like a fast position. I think it, you know, I think the benefit of it is it gets his head very low and he seems to be able to keep his head low and that's good because heads not very aerodynamic.
1: I have to say I was quite concerned for his uh, welfare looking at his bike because he appears to be running well, I think is an Arione a very narrow old school saddle on his bike which uh, given his aggressive position I think it's just as well he's already a father I'll put it that way. <laughs>
0: um. <laughs> yeah that is his saddle of choice and it, you know it's a, it's a saddle that used to be very very popular but has really gone out of fashion now that we have kind of you know short saddles with uh sit bone support and cutouts but um yeah he's sort of sticking by it and and you know Wig- bradley wiggins used to use a triathlon specific version of that saddle which had kind of extra padding and things like that but thomas seems to go for the minimally padded carbon railed version and he, yeah i mean it doesn't look comfortable to me but i guess now nah, he you knows, knows he's he's sticking, doing, with, yeah, it? He's sticking <laughs> with he's sticking with what works and you know as long as it continues to work for him i, I, I suppose he doesn't see any reason to change
1: what do you think your chances of getting onto the GB squad for the Olympics are, Simon, given your time trial, Palmares?
0: I mean, they're looking slim at the moment, yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, I have just had, uh, you know, a, a, my first child, and I think that's that's really held me back this year. Otherwise, obviously, you know. <laughs> yeah, I think it's slim. The, you know, the issue is, Jack, that you can only take four riders and those four riders have to ride the road race as well as the time trial. And, you know, road racing is just not my thing anymore.
1: Well, yeah, I guess you were always going to be overlooked for that reason alone. Um, Separate to this, and I will say we are going to do a a standalone podcast on this because I think it was a fabulous piece of work, but my beloved colleague, Matthew Loveridge did a really good piece where we're often, we often see in comments, people saying that bikes these days really are, much more expensive than they used to be. Now, taking into account inflation, but also comparing the relative value, now that's obviously quite a hard thing to, to ascertain and measure. Matthew compared the prices of bikes from 2009 to today. And he's done that across two different areas. And I should specify, it's just on road bikes. Mountain bikes is a very, very different kettle of fish. And I think no one would argue, although perhaps I'm setting myself up for failure here, that mountain bikes aren't better today than they were you know in 2009 I think mountain bikes really have seen a much much like a more a more significant increase in terms of performance anyway that's besides the point 2009 2020 2021 <laughs> road bikes <laughs> I'm really getting caught up myself here I kind of entry level as well as the top end now at the top end is absolutely true the halo bikes cost more than ever but When has buying a £10,000-plus bike ever been a sensible decision? Never.
0: Yeah, and and I think, you know, Matthew's kind of uh, the the key kind of comparison he he opened with was a 2009 Specialized S-Works Tarmac versus a 2021 Specialized S-Works Tarmac. And the kind of percentage change after inflation in the UK was 51%. And that is pretty eye-opening, uh, eye-watering, mind-boggling. <laughs> but he, you know, he did also point out that the pound was particularly strong back in two thousand and nine, and that would have had an effect on, you know, cheapening imports. But I think, you know, I think like Matthew also noted, it's really, really difficult to to do these comparisons because, you know, buying power also comes into it. You know, we we could have potentially gone into kind of like how much of wages gone up on average, all all of these things, but. I think, as you say, the general trend seems to be that top-end bikes have gone up. And you know, I was uh, thinking about this, you know, after reading Matthew's very, very interesting article, because as you say, it's a it's a fantastic article, and uh, and it's a really interesting thing to consider. But I wonder if it really things started to really take off after kind of, you know, uh, especially in the UK after Wiggins won the Tour in twenty twelve. Pinarello's, which were always, had always been, you know, pretty premium bikes, started selling really, really well, you know, and I wonder if other brands sort of sat up and took notice and thought, well, you know, if they can sell bikes that are really, you know, a premium end of the market, maybe there is a premium audience for our bikes too. And it's kind of that Apple effect, isn't it, where Apple iPhones seem to get more and more expensive every year and more and more people buy them because the more expensive they are, the kind of more premium, audience they're attracting.
1: It's a really good point. Yeah, like in 2009, I'm sure you could build a specialised S-Works tarmac for 10 grand, but, S- but you know, specialised weren't offering one, whereas I'd have to check, but I bet you Pinarello around that time you could buy a stock Pinarello for 10 grand. It's a really good point, actually. Um, and yeah, we should also absolutely acknowledge, though this is covered in the article, that current supply issues, Brexit and the pandemic, all have kind of distorted like the way we look at figures, and it's most notable at uh, uh, like accessories and components side of things. You know, uh, things like consumables, like chains, have gone up hugely in price. Um, Certainly here in the UK, and part of that will be to do with demand. Though the impression I got is there's there's not profit going on in the industry. I, I genuinely believe that is the case. I think it really is you know, certainly here in the UK, things are more expensive than they used to be. <laughs>
0: yeah, and I, but I think, as you know, Matthew kind of moved on to point out in the article that new bikes have, you, you do get more for your money as well, and that if you bought an equivalent, you know, the, the S-Works Tarmac that Matthew kind of, the top spec one that Matthew kind of compared it to, if you compared it to maybe the the second tier S-Works Tarmac of today, you know, the kind of components you get on the second tier one are are miles better than what you get what you've got on the top tier one in terms of how the bike performs from 10 years ago and and so you know for the same price there has been an improvement in what you're getting it's just that that they've they've seemed to like have added a kind of a tier on top of that but you know like Matthew said you're getting things like you know carbon clincher wheels now which were really rare 10 years ago and are now kind of like you know, obviously they're not cheap, but they are more relatively affordable. Like Matthew, I kind of also added that the, the top tier S-Works Tarmac model this year comes with a power meter. Now, power meters cost a lot of money 10 years ago and very, very few people. And if you'd added a power meter onto the price of that 10-year-old S-Works Tarmac, that would have added a significant chunk of money because I think, you know, 10 years ago, basically the market was dominated by SRM. They would have cost, you know, maybe 1,500, 2,000 pounds. Whereas today we're seeing those specs stock on bikes, and so you do have to factor things like that into account as well.
1: I think one of the things that perhaps we should have addressed in the article, and maybe we will in a future one, um, one of the like one of the key determinants in the wider consciousness of the cycling public is is weight. People really care about weight, and it's a very easy measure by which to compare bikes and how good they are in inverted commas. Um, And it is true that I bet the top-end S-Works 10 years ago was probably lighter than the top-end S-Works Tarmac today. But as you would argue, Simon, you have many, 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 many times at great length that doesn't really matter. And that is in part because, yes, disc brakes are heavier and, yes, uh, you know, wider tyres or deeper wheels are heavier, but, you know, people's understanding of just how vital aero performances at the top end of the bike market when you are overall else considering how fast can I go aero is more important than weight so I I, it's not particularly helpful or relevant to compare the weight of bikes but I do understand where people are coming from if that is really really what you care about more than anything then yeah 10 year old bike might be better for you (laughs) yeah but I, I can
0: see why people kind of feel that it's an issue because the the bike industry did spend an awful long time telling everyone that it was really important and the whole reason we had to have you know press fit bottom brackets was because it helped shave 200 grams off the the, the bare frame weight you know that's the whole reason we have black bikes because it shaves 200 grams off the frame weight you know <laughs> all of these things save weight and the bike industry told us you know, forever that that like weight was what was really important. And you know, this this kind of this kind of thing comes and goes, right? And when Merckx did his hour record back in the sixties or whenever it was, he built the lightest possible bike to go as fast as he possibly could. And you know, he was an amazing, amazing athlete, and he did an incredible record. But the the weight of the bike did nothing for him. And actually, him drilling holes in it, everything <laughs> he had probably probably slowed him down. So, but then, you know, in the eighties, Moser, Francesco Moser, Italian, you know, fantastic Italian rider, realized that actually aerodynamics played a much bigger role. He turned up with disc wheels, a skin suit, an aero helmet, and he basically broke Merckx's record, you know, relatively easily. He he turned up one day, broke it relatively easily, got off his bike, had a chat with his trainer, came back two days later, broke it again and added another kilometer onto it. And and sort of ever since then, you know, riders at the kind of real pointy end of the sport have realized that it's aerodynamics that affect how fast you go, not weight. But, you know, as you say, selling a bike on weight is a real, it's a real easy, tangible thing that we can all relate to. And selling something on aerodynamic performance is much more difficult because if I, you know, if the bike brand says something's 10% faster, that's not a tangible figure. That you or I can can really put our fingers on when we're when we're kind of you know eyeing up a bike in a shop. Now it is something you can feel out on the road. Now you know as you say, I've recently been riding a few aero bikes as part of a group test, and like they are just faster. <laughs> like it's it's like it's ridiculous, and the, and the really good ones are really really fast, and it's like having an extra gear. But you know I can understand if that doesn't get everyone excited. If you love lightweight bikes that that's also fine but it it, it's just that really tricky thing of yes bikes were lighter 10 years ago but lighter doesn't really do anything for you it's it's not something you know like i i only weigh 63 64 kilos or something so if light if being light was really good I would be making the GB Olympic team <laughs> but it, it really it really isn't and so, so you can take it from someone who's really light that it doesn't make you any faster
1: like, I don't know about that Simon you're an absolute machine but that's probably something to do here uh, commitment to training I think yeah the whole, yeah the whole piece has made us it's definitely made me a bit more introspective in considering how we measure Uh, value of bikes you know it is a really hard thing to to put your finger on Um, I, I would really stand by the the argument that bikes are better they are better than they were and by any measure really you know they're more versatile than they were before which ultimately is probably what most people should care about you know, not everyone is a Simon Bromley. Not everyone is concerned about going fast, and the ability to to tickle a little bit of the grav on your road bike is probably of much greater value to you than you know a small amount of saved weight or slightly more aerodynamic bike. Because ultimately, it's going to make you happier and have more fun. But that's a really, really hard thing to to measure because it isn't. You know, you can't measure it.
0: And it's and it's not sexy either, is it? To say that this bike you know like you know it's just kind of things that you know you always go on about as well like this bike has integrated mudguard mounts that's not a sexy selling point in a bike shop but like you'll be so grateful <laughs> for it on that day when it's like absolutely pissing down and yeah. you're that <laughs> you're the guy in the group with the the nice dry
1: warm feet yeah totally and that's that's really for me these kind of small changes which have just made bikes really i i am going to say it simon but at an entry level decent road bike you really could do almost anything you want with it it's the one bike to rule them all for you and that's what the majority of people's riding is like and i think that'll make them happier anyway it's been i've really enjoyed it i urge you to read it we will have a more in-depth discussion about this with matthew uh when he's back from his annual leave <laughs> <And we> record, <laughs> record a podcast of it but yeah it's a good piece Check it out on bikerader.com. And finally, and actually sort of on a similar line uh, in the mountain bike world, we saw Shimano launch two new drivetrains, sort of. Uh, Link Glide XT and Dior. Now, last year, yes, it was last year, Shimano released a new 12-speed version of its Dior group set. And it was, it had loads and loads of different options in there. It's been very highly rated on bikegrader.com It's a great group set. But then, seemingly out of the blue, they've released this Glide drivetrain, which is essentially Dior and XT, I should say, but packaged up in a more robust package overall. So you're getting much of the same tech that you, see, you saw on those uh, newer group sets, but essentially it's gone down to 10 and 11 speed only options with a heavier, harder-wearing uh, chainring and cassette and just a more burly package overall. Now, Shimano is clearly trying to meet the needs of the e-bike market here. E-bikes put a tremendous amount of force and torque through their drivetrains, and they just wear quicker because of that. But really, looking at the comments, people are most interested in this for their normal bikes because you you could somewhat say Shimano is quite focused on weight and the performance of their group sets when you think about it from a cross-country performance perspective. That's not universally true, but it is kind of... Compared to SRAM, maybe more of a concern for them. But the idea of a more durable group set overall has really captured the imagination of of the public. And I think it's a a really, really commendable thing. Before we go on to it, I should say there was a sort of equivalent, and this was e-bike specific from SRAM years ago now. It's called EX8. It was an eight-speed e-bike specific, in quotes, uh, drivetrain, which was, you know, totally and utterly designed to be really hard wearing. It didn't really kick off in a big way and you tend to see more standard SRAM drivetrains on complete bikes. But this Shimano one seems to really tickled people's fancy. What do you think, Simon?
0: Yeah, I think like, like you, I think it's a really nice thing to see because, you know, you could kind of see from the kind of pure capitalist point of view, you could kind of see <laughs> a company like Shimano not doing this because, you know, you think, oh, increased wear rates, maybe that's good for business because we can sell more parts, you know, they can keep getting replaced. But I think it's nice to see that Shimano has kind of been realistic and decided to, you know, acknowledge that parts wearing down and, and then leading to sort of reduced performance because when your chain and your cassette and your chain rings wear, you, you know, you'll often get skipping under load and you know, and, and obviously reduced shift performance and all of that sort of thing. So it's nice to see that a company is looking at that and, and sort of say, rather than sort of just saying, well, you, know, you should replace your chain rings and, and chains and chain rings and cassettes and all of your bike parts more regularly. It's nice to see that they're actually looking at that and saying, that's an issue that, that we can improve as an end experience for the user. So I think it's really great. And yeah, like maybe it adds a little bit of weight, but again, like it just doesn't matter. And and, and the benefits of it are going to be pretty good for the consumer. And especially if it's Shimano doing it, then it should appear on lots of OEM bikes. And so you're actually like, you might get this even without realizing you're getting it. And you don't, you might not even have to make a kind of a specific choice to get it, which is quite nice.
1: Yeah, it's funny you say that on the OEM bikes because prior to us publishing the article, I emailed a few brands who I kind of thought like maybe they would spec on their non-e-bikes and their impression was very much like, well, (laughs) we'll see what the availability is like. And that's true of all all brands at the minute. I think nobody can get hold of certain products. There's blockages all across the board with certain things. So I think it'll be some time until we see it coming out, but it's definitely one I'm really, really keen to have the team test because I think it's going to be, yeah, a a pretty key product and definitely one that I uh, fully welcome. And, yeah, I think you are really on the money there where, like, Shimano knows they can improve this and they've actually acted upon it. And the, the shift performance thing is perhaps something I hadn't really considered because if you want to look at it through a slightly uh, sceptical eye, if people are buying in Shimano drivetrains and they're wearing out really quickly because they're being used in an e-bike, which, you know, they're designed to do, but they just do wear out, then the perception of the brand could be tarnished in that way. So if it's this harder-wearing thing, their longer-term kind of feelings on it will definitely be good. And then for the enthusiast end of the market, well, if you can slap on an e-bike cassette on your bike and it will last forever and ever, then great. On that note, I should say there are some kind of compatibility issues where essentially the pitch of the cassette and the cable pool ratios of the um, derailleurs won't work with your standard shifters. So if you want to buy into the system, you will need a shifter, a rear derailleur, and a cassette, though there are some compatibility kind of crossovers between hyperglide uh, chains and chainrings. So you do not have to buy a full new drivetrain, but if you wear out your current one, it's well worth considering. Well, thanks, Simon. I really enjoyed that. Great chat. No
0: worries. Yeah. I always like to come on and uh, talk about new aero stuff and, you know, and bash weight weenies. So it's been a pleasure.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you very much for listening. Please do give us a five-star rating if you think we deserve it, which I'm sure we do. Wherever you listen to your podcast, check out the article that's associated with this podcast on Bike Radar. Leave any thoughts you have in the comments. We do always read them. We love your feedback and have a lovely day thanks very much cheers jack bye-bye
0: thank you for listening to the bike radar podcast if you want any more information on what we've been talking about or more news and views on cycling check out bikeradar.com